Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. L.D. Britt, Brickhouse Professor and Chairman of Surgery at the Eastern Virginia Medical School. As is known to most persons, Dr. Britt has served in many distinguished leadership roles, including serving as chair of the American College of Surgeons Board of Regents in 2008, director of the American Board of Surgery, chairman of the ACGME Residency Review Committee for Surgery. More recently, he was installed as the 91st president of the American College of Surgeons and is currently the president of the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, presenting over its 70th annual meeting. His leadership skills and positions have put him in the forefront of the acute care surgery movement and made him an expert on issues related to tra training future trauma and acute care surgeons. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Britt. Well, thank you for the invitation. You uh, recently wrote a small publication in which you quoted Dr. Halstead, who said, quote, every important hospital should have on its resident staff of surgeons at least one who is well-trained and able to deal with any emergency. Keeping this advice in mind, can you give us an overview of what an acute care surgeon is or is going to be, and what led up to the whole acute care surgery movement? When we came up with the first definition of acute care surgery, we wanted someone who obviously was a trauma surgeon, but someone who also had expertise in emergency general surgery, and someone who also did surgical critical care. You put those three together, that's the acute care surgeon. Hall says comment, actually, I felt he really described an acute care surgeon. Today, with all of this subspecialization, or you can call it fragmentation, even people going into quote-unquote general surgery will have a niche in breasts, a surgical oncology, a paddlebiliary pancreatic. We don't have that surgeon who is doing the emergency surgical care, trauma, and surgical critical care. And so this evolving specialty, this new established specialty of acute care surgery was well needed. It is filling a void. And so what's going to happen to the general surgeon? Well, some general surgeon, no. The general surgeon, those who don't go into a niche, remember, there are different general surgeons now. They all call themselves general surgeons, but they'll say, particularly after 5 o'clock, I just want to do colon rectal or I just want to do breasts. But the general surgeon still is part of the solution of taking care of emergencies as far as trauma and as far as emergency surgical care. Because still, today, the cornerstone of management of trauma and acute surgical problems is still done by the general surgeon. My concern is that the general surgeons are getting less, the true general surgeons. The acute care surgeon is the next generation general surgeon. But as you know, we don't train that many. So we're gonna, if we're going to say, well, this will be the solution, well, that's, gonna be, uh, um, uh, that's not going to happen. We're not going to have that many acute care surgeons to cover all of the acute surgical needs in this country. That's why a general surgeon is really needed. One of the things we did uh, are doing now, as you know, we have redefined the curriculum for the general surgeon. And we're trying to now to make general surgery attractive. And so when that person finishes general surgery, and let us say is in a rural community, they can provide the services needed for that acutely injured patient and critically ill patient. And so this model mm -hmm. isn't just applicable to the rural setting or the urban setting, no. community versus university. This is really a model that you envision rolling out across the board and a true paradigm shift for training. Oh, no doubt about it. See, I don't have any problems the way people define acute care surgery. 
If you have five different institutions, they will define it five different ways. That's fine, based on your resources. If you have resources where you have available a vascular surgeon, you have available a, uh, let us say, a, a um, um, orthopedic surgeon. I have no problems with them saying that our acute care surgeon does A, Y, and Z. Some other institution might say, well, our acute care surgeon, because they don't have that, does everything. I have no problems that we need to fill a void. At the end of the day, there's suboptimal patient care because we don't have that surgeon that Halstead described in many of the institutions, both in the urban setting and in the rural setting. And how do you, starting from point A now, the, the mm -hmm. surgical resident recruit into this field, how do you get that surgical resident to go into this fellowship, I suppose? Wouldn't the pushback be that it's just a redo of my chief year? Well, no, it's not a redo because in all fairness, if you really look at acute care surgery, you have to do general surgery, you have to do trauma, and you have to do surgical critical care. If you notice the fellowships, we don't have a fellowship that, that, a fellowship that is accredited that does not have an accredited critical care component. So it's not a rehashing of your, your five years of general surgery. It, it adds to that. So it's a true specialty. And so then in that regard, what's going to happen to just the one-year current surgical critical care track? Is that going to disappear and be morphed no, into it? No, it because there are some people, I'm glad you brought that up, that all they want to do is surgical critical care. So we have to be able to have an avenue for that person. They're not that many, but there are some that just want to do surgical critical care. And so ultimately the vision, I guess, is going to be that there's several tracks. There's, there's the ACS yeah. track, maybe a trauma track only, and, and a uh, surgical critical, critical care, care track. Yeah, but again, you know, we're not doing this. This is not a turf sort of battle. This is trying to fill a void. We want that patient. Let's say you're that patient. And let's say you're, you, you go to an area and you get sick. Hopefully that will not be the case and you require emergency surgical intervention. And let's say you're in an area where they only have general surgeons who specialize in breasts and the rest. Uh, you, you have a problem. You have a dilemma. We're trying to fill a void that we see now across this country. Where after five o'clock or six o'clock, certainly two or three in the morning, people are scrambling to try to find that acute care surgeon. Whether the acute care surgeon is fellowship trained or a general surgeon who obviously can do this, we really don't care. We want optimal patient management. So in that regard, then, in talking about the voids that are out there for surgical coverage, particularly off hours through the emergency department, in 2005, the American College of Emergency Physicians wow. did a survey that you wrote about mm -hmm. um, that described 75% of the ED physicians felt that they did not have adequate orthopedic, plastics, yeah. particularly hand, and neurosurgical coverage. Correct. Where do those skill sets fall into acute care surgery? I really do feel as acute care surgery evolves... We're going to have to obviously train some of the acute care surgeons in hand, in orthopedics, and some minimal neurosurgical interventions. Now, a lot of my specialty colleagues then bristle when I say that. We're talking about optimal patient care. We don't have any problems. If the neurosurgeon is there, sure, let that neurosurgeon help us with the, the putting in an ICP monitor. Let him do it. Let her do it. What I'm saying is that right now, and you quoted the article, they don't have access. They have patients from that article where patients come in and they can't find no specialists. Well, there's a void. So why not have a surgeon trained? I'm not talking about somebody who's just thinking about it, but trained to put it. You're talking about five limited procedures. You're talking about putting in an ICP monitor. You're talking about a limited craniectomy. You're talking about putting on an external fixator. You're talking about washouts. Well, the, the more traditional general surgeon decades ago used to do some of those. But the original 
mm-hmm. concept, if I understand it correctly, of the acute care surgery model that the AASD really championed right. involved these types of procedures, and that idea was apparently, anyway, discarded by it the specialists. It wasn't discarded. It wasn't discarded. We had some political pushback. And what we're now doing is letting it evolve. We're telling those specialists who oppose that, the neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons, well, we need you to be available. If they end up not being available during the critical time, because you remember this is a time-sensitive problem, then we will certainly reopen that chapter as far as making sure that the acute care surgical educational curriculum involves those sort of items. So, again, we don't have a problem they, if they're going to be there. And they say, well, we're going to be there and regionalization and all that. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. I think our original format is going to be the format that we ultimately will have to put into our curriculum. Because I think there's going to be a void, not, in, not across the country, but in some areas there, there will be a void. Because this whole genesis of this specialty was to cover that void. So you're taking a little bit of a watch and wait type attitude. Well, not so much watch and wait. We just, we're, we're, if they're saying they can do it, and they're saying that you know we, we will provide the expertise, we have to see. If that's not the case, we're not going to allow patients to have suboptimal care based on some sort of uh, political battle. We just not going to allow that. And so taking this to that level right. certainly goes beyond the AAST. Now we're starting to talk about competency issues yeah. and expert experts who will show up and potentially say you may are or are not competent yeah. in this field as a general surgeon. So this needs to go to the board level. Well, some organizations have already challenged our specialists to do more. In fact, the American Surgical Association, that was recently discussed as far as neurosurgical boards and orthopedic boards, more neurosurgical. So organized surgery has already addressed this as a problem. Remember that you don't have that many neurosurgeons. If neurosurgeons, you have um, over 3,000 neurosurgeons. If, if they wanted to, again, I'm not picking on neurosurgeons because I, they, I, they have been very uh, um, valuable. If they wanted to, they could not cover all of the hospitals unless they cover two hospitals 365 days a year. Per surgeon. Yeah, per surgeon. (laughs) You just don't have enough. Well, I I think this is an argument that makes complete sense to the general surgical side. I hope so, because I I have have highlighted this argument. Because, again, people say, what is your motive? My motive is I just don't think a patient should have to wait around in the emergency department for specialists to be called in and they can't find a specialist, and you have a acute care surgeon there that could provide some of the limited interventions that I talked about. On a slightly different okay. track, okay. many people refer to the acute care surgeon as a surgical hospitalist, and the letter that you put out specifically says that's not what that it is. That is not the case. Again, you saw me back off the table when you said that. I have nothing against a surgical hospital, and certainly that's, that's a void, but a surgical hospital does not have the training of an acute care surgeon. A surgical hospital is you look at some of the models of people who just finished their five years of general surgery. That's the antithesis of an acute care surgeon. And while they might call themselves acute care surgeons, that's not the model uh, that, they, th- that they have embraced. A lot of them, again, you, you, you know the models like I know them. The, the surgical hospital's model is not a fully trained acute care surgeon, not even close to it. So let's talk about the actual okay, acute sure. care surgery fellowships. Sure. What how many are there? What do they involve? How Currently, many we have about eight to nine. It'll be nine probably at the end of this meeting. We have about 20 in the pipeline over the next 18 months. Remember that you only have 40 um, um, programs in, in pediatric surgery. 
you only have um, a handful of programs and functional programs in critical care. So we're not looking for 300 programs. I mean, if we end up having a good starting point of 30 acute care surgery fellowships, that's a good start and for, for a new specialty. And so you talked about how acute care surgeons may have different skill sets that they need based on where they're located. Yeah. What about the training? How, how, how are you going to uniform, uh, uniformize, if you will, yeah. the, uh, the training across the board? Well, again, I think th th we have a certain threshold that all the acute care surgery fellowships have to meet. But we have some latitude with the tracks, and we want to keep that latitude there. But there will be a certain common denominator curriculum that all of the fellows will have to do. And because remember, you don't know. You may, one day you might be in New York City, and you might decide to move to um, Dead Goat County. Sure. And so you have to have some of those skills. But we're going to have some latitude built in if you felt, feel that you need to do a little bit more obstetrics in a certain area. Or so, some urology. So at some level, this may morph a little bit, merge a little bit along with rural surgery. Yeah, you know, rural surgery is, is amazing. I think I think the, the way we're going now with this new curriculum for general surgery, I think a general surgeon who's trained with this new curriculum, given the fact that you, you can have some electives, will be able to do what he or she needs to do in a rural setting. And so is the... Uh, Remember that we have gotten away from it. I think we have just gotten into all these specializations you know again I, i'm not picking on breasts but breasts and surgical oncology which is fine but at the end of the day we need some surgical specialist there that can provide emergency surgical care in the acute setting and so is the is that intent to basically provide care to the patient right. overnight kind of just not necessarily ride the night through doing nothing but provide the upfront care such that in the morning when you potentially have more access yeah. to the specialist, you can get more definitive care? Or is it the plan that the ACS surgeon will carry the patient through from A to Z, rendering definitive care? No, we, care? we want definitive care. I mean, obviously, we, we, we're part of a team. Obviously, if you feel that this patient has gone a certain route and you need some specialty support, you're not going to be so, so obstinate that you're not going to ask one of the specialists in that particular field of health. But we want that acute care surgeon to, be, to do definitive management. So now we're talking about things that general surgeons usually don't do hand is a perfect example yeah. uh maybe external yeah. fixation yeah. as a definitive therapy for fractures yeah but still surgeons in the battlefield now a lot of the non-orthopedic general surgeons are putting on external fixer remember we're not talking like a, about skull-based surgery we're not talking about a hip replacement we're talking about basic procedures to stabilize a patient definitively and st stabilization and so ultimately then is the intent to have this as a board uh, certified specialty, subspecialty? Uh, my vision for that is the case. But remember, you have to go through thir certain steps. It has to be ACGME. And uh, if you're an ACGME training program, you have to obviously abide by their regulations. Having been the past chair of the RRC, there are many. The eight-hour work week, as a fellow, uh, as a trainee, you can't bill to, to, to generate revenue. And there are some training programs as you know that will never go that route which means they'll never be able to get quote-unquote board certification transplantation is one minimally invasive surgery is one because they again i'm not speak I, I'm, I'm not a transplant surgeon or i'm a minimally invasive surgeon i do do some minimally invasive surgery my gut feeling is that they don't want to have that restriction where their fellow cannot work and and be like a junior attending which is a which is a violation if you're in an acgme track 
So we'll see. We certainly want to position ourselves for that option if we choose to go that route. And starting with the AAST, which really championed this thing, mm-hmm. you're now suggesting that the American Board of Surgery, the Residential Review Committees, mm-hmm. all the various regulatory bodies are starting to come together behind this concept. Well, think about it. We now have a sub-board. I'm director of American Board of Surgery. We have a sub-board that's trauma, critical care, and um, uh, burns. That's really, if you look at it, that's really acute care surgery. It has formally, as of the last meeting, is a sub-board. So we're certainly making that step. Remember, surgical oncology was a sub-board. Now you can get board certification in surgical oncology. So we're certainly moving in that, in that direction. I can't say for sure if we will ultimately decide to go the ACGME route. And today we already have a couple of active fellowships that you alluded to mm-hmm. and a large number that are in the pipeline about to go active. What are those guys getting Right, just a certificate of completion? Yeah, well, well remember, they, 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 they go through this process, and the, and the oversight body, I'll, I'll put it that way, is the AAST. That's like the oversight body for transplant is their organization. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't go the ACGME route and be, be under the ABMS, someone has to help you with your certification. And so those certifications are essentially through the AAST yeah. right now? The AST now is the oversight body. And is, that, is the AAST... Also, the body that's establishing some guidelines as to what these fellowships should include. And absolutely, include. absolutely, from the acute care surgery committee of the AAST. What? Remember, the permanent home. This is the first clinical congress, and we're sitting here of acute care surgery. The permanent home now, and I want your audience to hear this: for acute care surgery, is this organization, the AAST. AAST. And what do you think is the time frame for you know to move this aircraft carrier and turn it around and make it all happen? Well, I think we've done well. I mean, think about it. Look, look at how far we're going. We have a clinical congress now. We have established fellowships now. We have an exam. We have a, the MOC, maintenance of certification on acute care surgery. Uh, I would say in another 18 months, we'll probably have our 25 or 30 programs. So I think the timeline, I think we're doing pretty well. That's, that's incredibly fast if you yeah. put it in perspective of surgery as a whole. Excellent. Um, any other last comments before no, we... this has been a brilliant interview, and I'm glad you had a chance to talk with me, but there are many others. I mean, there have been a lot of, as you know, fingerprints on acute care surgery, and it's something we have to continue to mature. Well, certainly the, the movement... But there's a need for it. I mean, I, want, I don't want people to think that this is all they just want to be able to, to, to highlight something. This is... We did this for the most part because there's a void in this sort of management. You quoted it. It didn't come from surgeons, emergency physicians said that they're having problems getting specialty coverage. And so I do think if we end up still having that problem, which I think we will personally, we need to make sure that acute care surgeon that Hall said talked about is trained and ready to provide that sort of service. Well, certainly this is, this is a dramatic change in the concept of the general surgeon. And in turn, it's going to become a dramatic change in the training of the general surgeon. It's a dramatic change, but it goes back to our roots. If you go back to the Hippocratic Oath that you took and then I took, it did not say in the Hippocratic Oath that you can be a physician or surgeon, but you can't do it after 5 o'clock in the afternoon, that you can't do it 2 or 3 in the morning, that you, you can't take care of indigent patients or be on call for the holidays. And if you look at now some of the fragmentation we have, uh, I'm not sure we're embracing the Hippocratic Oath. That acute care surgeon needs to be there. Our general surgeon needs to be there for those acute surgical problems, whether they're injured or acutely ill surgically. And so um, one follow-up question on that in terms of the training then is 
do you anticipate that this is going to be a three and three type thing uh, in terms of residency no. years, or is this a when do you need to decide? Will it always be a fellowship after completion of a formal five year general I, surgical? I personally feel, again, I'm not speaking for the group, that this is so comprehensive. You need to go through your at least four, certainly currently now, five years of general surgery training, and this is an add-on because one of those two years is surgical critical care. And you're not going to be able to morph that down because there's a certain um, uh, threshold you have to meet, nine months, to be able to sit for the critical care boards. And if you notice, none of the fellowships are approved that they don't have a, an accredited surgical critical care track already existing in that institution. So I think we have to have that. But think about it. You're talking about somebody, if this is done right, this will be the most well-trained, diversely trained surgeon in any specialty. Well, that, that's certainly true, particularly if the neurosurgical community, orthopedic community, yeah. plastics community rallies around it and expands the breadth of training. And they should rally behind it because we're not talking about doing their complex procedures. We're talking about stabilizing people. Uh, providing those interventions that they choose not to, two or three in the morning. You have now, I'll give you an example. You have now PAs putting in ICP monitors, neurologists putting in ICP monitors. We used to put on external fixes. We used to do washouts. So we're not talking about, as I mentioned before, skull-based surgery. We're talking about those interventions that could be life-saving in the acute setting. So conceivably, then one uh, after you get over one's ego and turf battles, financially, this should have very little effect. No, no effect. Right now, the, re the best way to do this, in my mind, now let's speak personally, is always think what is best for the patient. Forget about the politics. What is best for the patient? What is best for the patient at 1 a.m., 3 a.m.? Is it best for that patient to sit around? and wait for 7.30 to 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock that morning for a specialist to come in. And if the answer is no, then you need to put together some way of preventing that. Well, this has been an uh, outstanding talk, and I think that's an excellent way to end with your vision and the drive with which you have really championed this, uh, this paradigm shift, I think. We've been speaking today with Dr. L.D. Britt regarding training future acute care surgeons. I'd like to thank you again for taking the thank time you. to thank sit you. with us and update us on the evolution of, as I said, what I think will be a new specialty and a new paradigm within the field of surgery itself. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.